Welcome to a new episode of Erasing Shame. And today I'm joined by J.S. Park across the miles, coast to coast. He's in Florida. I'm in California. Thank you for making some time to chat, J.S. DJ, thank you so much. And I, you know what, can I just brag on you right at the start of this, just a little bit? Well, I'll edit, I'll edit this out in post, but <laughs> I'm teasing. Go ahead. No, that's part of the shame, right? Hearing compliments and affirmation is hard. Right? Yes. No, I, you know, I just want to brag on you that I think it's about seven, eight, maybe even, even longer, seven, eight years ago, you wrote a blog post and you said something like most influential or impactful Asian American bloggers. It may have been something like mm-hmm. Asian bloggers you don't know. And I think mm-hmm. at the time, like the most well-known people, there, were, there was like Francis Chan and I think maybe Eugene Cho was up there. But then you put my name on that blog post. Hmm. And I, I was so surprised and, you know, so thankful that you did that. And you have been a consistent advocate and champion for Asian American voices. E- even just talking, saying that out loud for you, it, it makes me emotional a little bit because. Oh, you're making me cry. You know, we, we don't have we don't have enough of that. And you have been so consistent. You have been such a champion. You have amplified voices, not just of Asian Americans, but in the mental health community. And there's a lot of overlap there, too, where, you know, <laughs> we don't get to talk about mental health in the Asian community either. So, <laughs> DJ, I just want to say at the top of this podcast, I am I am eternally grateful for you. That blog post was such a wonderful way for us to technically, you know, kind of meet spiritually. And so, DJ, uh, God bless. You are, you are awesome. I, I, well, I love you. you so much. I, I really, really do. And, uh, you know, ever since then, I know, I know we try to meet maybe once or twice <laughs> in yes, real life. Right. Well, I, I think it can happen. I think it's going to happen. But I just got to tell your listeners, your viewers, you are the real deal. And I don't say that about a lot of people, but you really are. Well, thank you, JS. And thank you for doing what you're doing. Um, I, I really feel like uh, this is becoming a... a, a trope kind of word but i think it's still very valuable that uh the word for our generation is calling so i really do feel like Mm. this is my calling previous generations have used words like purpose or significance or meaning in life so i think uh it's embedded in who who we are as human beings that we yearn for this uh, thing that's more than just what we see and hear and feel in the natural scientific world that there's got to be more than this and that desire points to something more than us, yeah. Uh, what we see. And, and yet we're here in this human condition, in this struggle. And uh, so, JS, J. Thank, thank you for those kind words. Um, you are a blogger. You're very active on social media. And you recently came out with a new book, and you work as a chaplain. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I want to just give you give our viewers and listeners, we actually create this uh, in both medium and try to distribute this as freely as we can, uh, this podcast. And uh, well, well, we'll see where, where this conversation goes. Um, yeah, you've gone my, through a lot. I did my hair for you, by the way, just <laughs> knowing that it might be on video too, right? You, you did what? <laughs> I did my hair for you. And, and Oh, your hair. No, I, <laughs> I, I, I combed my hair as well because it was uh, bed hair. <laughs> Out here, it's, it's uh, really early in the morning. And um, I, I still sleep nine hours a night. Oh, and wow. So part of my healing journey was discovering what I needed to do for myself um, to stay healthy. Oh, yeah. Good Emotionally, self-care. physically, mentally, and all of that. 
And um, you've gone a lot through in life. What got you through? Um, how old are you now? Uh, so I'm good. I'm, I just turned 38 very recently. Mm. And so, um, yeah, yeah. I was a, an eighties kid. And to your, to your point about being, going through a lot. Yeah. I didn't know that I went through a lot, mm. you know, cause I, a few years ago now I took the ACE uh, score test. And for those who don't know what that is, it's the adverse childhood experiences and you score out of 10. That's what the current test is now. I know they're updating it. But the higher you score on it, the more doses of trauma you receive. And if you get like a four or more, you're more liable to have health issues and things like that. So I scored a nine out of 10, which is unusually high. And I apparently have like a thousand percent chance of getting a heart attack, depression, anxiety, going to jail, even, uh, you know, different kinds of uh, adverse maladaptive behaviors. So I didn't really know that. And in the chaplain program, when I first went, as I started talking about my experiences, the supervisor looked at me and said, you know, what happened to you was not okay. Right. And I, I said, no, you know, that's what we all go through, you know, because mm. you know, a lot of minorities and Asian Americans, when we grow up, we're, we don't know that discipline, quote unquote, is actually abuse. Um, a lot of times, because our, our parents, mm. when they're disciplining us, they can become very abusive. So I didn't know that. So as I was explaining my experiences, my supervisor pointed out, you know, what happened to you is not okay. And I said, no, 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 this, you know, my parents were just disciplining me, or I just went through what every kid does, you know, that kind of thing. And she kept saying that over and over. And I was laughing it off, but then I started crying. Mm -hmm. And it was just in me, you know, mm -hmm. that, that trauma was in my bones. And after a while, I had to come to the realization this was it was not normal. And God bless my parents and you know many people who took care of me. I you know I, I want to have grace for all of that. I know that they were doing the best they can with you know how they knew how. But at the same time, there was a lot of stuff that I should not have seen or endured uh, that I went through. And so nine is pretty high. Uh, but at the same time, yes. I'm so glad for the wonderful voices like you and many people that I've encountered throughout life who have helped me to build resilience through all that trauma. Yeah, the, this adds to kind of our Asian American journey as we're talking in the month of May, Asian American Heritage Month, that our life experience is so unique and we don't see other stories around. And then we're often living on the margins of society because we're surrounded by mostly white people. It's starting to change, but... Um, so we don't know that our story is not healthy. Mm -hmm. we, we know it's different a little bit and we feel bad about being different and all the identity issues we have to wrestle through that with that. But uh, for you to go through and to survive how, um, is, is amazing. Uh, some would say miraculous. Mm. Um, not knowing what you didn't know. Yeah. Right. Right. You, you just, you just, um, you just lived on, but as you discover how uh, painful and how harmful the trauma was to your body, mm -hmm. then you're getting that exposed. And uh, as you're learning to go on this path of recovery and resilience and healing, it must have been really hard work mm -hmm. that for many people, they would despair and just want to give up on life. Yeah, that's right. And I know that's been a little bit a part of your journey, but that's been the question that I've been wanting to ask someone is, 
what keeps someone from crossing over that line of no return of suicide mm-hmm. and how what kind of um well i mean basically you can share your own journey and, and hope that it helps others but yeah i can speak for myself yeah 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 that's a fantastic question i can speak for myself on that and that you know as i started to uncover this stuff inside um i think when you start to sort of dig under the wounds or under the scars, so to speak, there can be sudden bursts of remembering painful events that were either buried or even the feelings of pain that were buried. Um, because over time, one of the ways that we maybe falsely build resilience is to kind of numb ourselves or desensitize ourselves to what happened and, and block out our, our previous experiences uh, of of pain, almost like invalidating ourselves, you know? So as I started to get therapy and started to uncover those things in the chaplain program, um, I experienced extreme responses, emotional responses to finding all that stuff out. So um, I think one of the ways in which we can get through that, and I, I was lucky and privileged and blessed to have this, is strong support, strong support networks. So people that I was able to talk it out with and there's something about talking about your pain out loud with another person, being able to uh, self-disclose and then solidify your own narrative that builds strength in itself. I, th- I think all, all evidence and research points to self-disclosure being very, very healing. I know it doesn't work for everyone and that's why we have things like EMDR and, and those kinds of therapy. Mm-hmm. But uh, with self-disclosure, as I talk it out, and the person become the other person, the therapist or counselor or whoever it might be, mentor, as they become a sounding board and sort of almost like giving an empathic response to your pain, a, a healing happens. But even just in the telling, even just in our expression, there there's healing that happens. So I was very lucky in that as I was in the fall of self-disclosure, because it feels like you're falling, mm-hmm. there are people there to catch you. And there, mm. there, there are people there in some sense that act as a safety net. And so I was in a very, very safe place to be able to, to talk about those things. And so I can't imagine having done that without people around me to help, uh, without very trained, uh, well-equipped people, even just friends who are mature, who kind of knew how to spiritually and emotionally navigate that. And so, I, again, I consider myself blessed because I know not everyone finds that at the time that they need. And so um, I think it's incumbent upon us to be able to be sort of the safety net for others, to be kind of that story cup and that grief catcher for other people. Man, those are great pictures. Thank you for sharing that. And I uh, I found your book. I just read it in, I think I read it under a week after it was released. (laughs) There's not many books that hold my attention. And part of it is because of my own uh, journey at this stage of life with self-discovery and healing and um, um, connecting the left brain and the right brains of my head, which is uh, the metaphor that my counselor use, uses. And the, um, um, I, I, thought, I, I think what kept me engaged with your book was you, you were able to un- pack the psychological model that you had for different voices that we carry Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and we all have them because it's it's part of how we think and how we feel and you weaved it with many very 
touching human stories of your role as a chaplain, as well as your own journey. So uh, here on, on this podcast, we, we talk about the word shame and you uh, masterfully avoided that word, but it, it's part <laughs> of our human condition. Yep. And you came up with, with just new ways of telling the story. I think that was, was, was fresh and engaging for, for me as a reader and I encourage others to check that book out as well, the voices we carry. And um, what, what comes to your mind when you hear the word shame? Mm. Yeah. And DJ, I've been listening to your podcast, so <laughs> I think I knew this was coming. But yeah, shame is about, of course, uh, for me, for me, it's about who we are as a, as a person, our value and our worth. So, you know, the old definition, I think Brene Brown talks about this, where guilt is, uh, I did something wrong. And shame says more, I am wrong. And so one example that I can think of is when I was much younger, back in elementary school, I, uh, you know how when they do the, the, the games like volleyball or kickball or something like that, they, you, they have team captain and then you pick the team member. So um, they would pick the biggest, strongest kids first, you know, the kids that they knew were athletic, but I was a new kid at this school and they didn't know where I was. Like, was I good or was I not? Well, he's Asian, but also he's small. So we don't know, you know, on what mm -hmm. on, on this range of athleticism, we don't know where he, he falls. So, uh, th so they picked me kind of around the middle and they found out very, very quickly that I'm completely unathletic when it comes to sports. My dad only <laughs> taught me martial arts. I don't know how to do anything else. Uh, at the ice skating rink, they call me Frankenstein because the way that oh. I ice skated is that I shuffle. So, so my athletic ability, I can't catch a ball. I can't throw a ball. I don't know how to tackle anybody. If you tell me to spar somebody, I can do that. If you tell me to get in the ring, sure. Um, but they found that out very quickly. So the next time we played uh, a game, I was picked dead last. And so, of course, I experienced deep, deep shame about that. And I think everybody knows that feeling. Everybody knows it. That feeling of being picked last, of being overlooked, of not just you did something wrong, but somehow you are intrinsically, inherently, morally, spiritually wrong. Like there is something so sick about you that uh, you have no value and worth and you will somehow infect mm -hmm. other people with it. And so there's almost like an inward uh, collapse on the inside when you feel shame. Mm -hmm. So uh, that comes out of our, that can come out of our cultural narratives that can come out of experiences like the one being picked last that can come out of rejection that can come out of our own failures from our efforts. Uh, but we all experience shame. And I think, you know, the way out of that, you know, your podcast title is erasing shame. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think, to erase shame, there first has to be an acknowledgement of it. There has to be an acknowledgement of here's what shame is and here's how I've experienced shame. Because we can erase shame in the wrong way. We can just mm -hmm. not talk about it, right? Mm -hmm. that, that would be numbing shame or that would be suppressing it. So I think there's a wrong way to erase shame. But of course, one of the ways that we can erase shame is to first say, here it is, here's what it feels like, and here's where it comes from. Let's trace it down. Now, for us as Asians and Asian Americans, we grew up in a culture that's described shame-based. Hmm. And a lot of that contributes to us not even knowing how to talk about shame, except when it's weaponized and used against us as 
parents would use against us to keep us on the right behavior, that you're shaming the family or you're causing us to lose face or you're not honoring the family name. Those are categories of shame. One study has shown over 133 synonyms for the word shame in the Chinese language. Wow. Kind of like Eskimos have, you know, 75 words for snow. And uh, share a little bit about what shame is unique to Asian and Asian Americans. As you hear so many life stories as a chaplain, I'm sure you come across all kinds of people. And a lot of them review the regrets they might have had in life. Speaking of those that are on the deathbed rather than just on the healing journey. Yeah. You know, DJ, what you said about our culture being shame-based, I absolutely feel that. I think there is some kind of work ethic or, and these are not new thoughts that I'm saying, by the way. I mean, we've seen, I think we've seen this in pop culture, even in Western pop culture, that there's a lot about making sure that our name is honorable, making sure that a reputation is pristine, uh, you know, ensuring that we're, work, we're seen as working as hard as possible, we're perceived as never being lazy. So there's all these things, these are not new things, but uh, certainly our, our culture is unique in that it uh, elevates these values almost to a divine level and it brings us worth. Um, but I've seen this other layer of shame as well. And I think this may be a second generation Asian type of shame in which uh, alluding to the earlier example about being picked last, I think there's an invisibility around Asian Americans in which we are not seen or heard as much in Western culture. Now that we've become a more globalized uh, world, I think there's a dehumanization or subhumanization of Asians and Asian Americans in which mm -hmm. we are sort of the last uh, acceptable punchline uh, when it comes to race, mm. when it comes to a group. And so from what I've seen, uh, just not just in hospital chaplaincy, but in general, is mm. Asians not being uh, seen and heard as much. So, so one example that I can give you is when I, I have this intense, weird panic and fear when I'm walking outside by myself alone or with my dog, I have this fear that if I have a heart attack and fall over, no one will come over to check on me because oh, it's just a Chinese guy, a billion more where he came from, or I'm mm -hmm. seen as less than or less than human. Now, am I reading into that too much? I don't know, maybe, but there's some, there's a genuine fear there that I won't be checked mm -hmm. on as much. And I think sometimes when in our hospital charting system, you know, we get orders and then we go visit the patient. If you get a patient's name who is Kim or Chin, anything like that, I don't know what it is about, I'm still figuring this out, but I've, I've perceived maybe that there is less empathy or care given to Asians or Asian Americans if wow. there's a language barrier or if they're seen as kind of like not fully human, they're just a tourist, they're just a foreigner, almost as if their life doesn't count as much as a non-person mm -hmm. in the next room or a non-Asian in the next room. So again, wow. I... I'm, I'm trying to speak in fairness to the healthcare workers mm. that I've worked with because I don't know if they're aware of it, but I've mm. seen it with my own eyes and I've experienced it. So mm. DJ, I'm saying a lot here and a lot of different things, but there's mm -hmm. that shame-based mm -hmm. um, culture that we experience, but now there's also this, almost this second layer of shame that we're dealing with of invisibility. 
And I think that's, wow. I think both of those things are not only Asian experiences, but they certainly are uh, emphasized and more of a problem uh, in Asian circles. Yeah, I hear that. I hear that. Uh, I, I know for many of us second-generation Asian Americans, we feel shame over our parents not being able to speak good English. Mm -hmm. And the other thought that came to mind is like, in Asia, the value of a human life just seems different. And so I could, I could picture if you were uh, laying by the side of the road, in Asia, Asian people walk by. Hmm. Uh, less, less likely in America per se, but it happens here too. Uh, but yeah wow that's heavy stuff but that's um, the situation we're in and uh, all the more in the reason that we need to uh, share our story and raise our voice um, uh, as as we move towards a close I, I guess I want to give a caveat to our viewers and listeners that you don't need to share your story with everybody to the whole world the way you and I are doing as bloggers and people, but you do need to find someone. And I think you're right when you say that there's something uh, powerful and healing when we're able to disclose our own story and our own pain, just to get it out of us. Um, some people might start with journaling or a diary or art, because mm -hmm. art taps into the other half of the brain. Yeah. And, um, something more happens when you tell some, someone else that can be empathetic. How do you find someone like that if you can't afford it? Hmm. Besides getting into the hospital and talking to Chaplin, I guess, is yeah. where to get there. <laughs> can I, you know, I want to address a myth. Yeah. I sure. think there's a myth that I can only be healed by a trained certified professional. Now, there is certainly a lot of value to a trained a train certified professional, right? Uh, because I wouldn't want to entrust my mental health to just anybody. Um, I want to seek a, a qualified, educated professional. At the same time, you know, there are mentors. There are people even in our own family. There are neighbors across the street. There are always people in our circle. I think God sends people at the right time, the right people, uh, not always, but I would say that most of the time, there is somebody who is willing to at least listen. Um, and in different seasons in our lives, sometimes we're lonely and alone, and that's very hard to come by. But then there are other seasons in our lives where um, there will be people that we can talk with. And I would say for the person who feels like there's nobody, this is a hard thing for me to say, BJ, because I don't want to make it sound like it's anybody's fault. But when we are feeling alone or lonely, there's a little bit on us to go seek those circles and those groups and that, those communities. Um, I hate to put it that way because I don't wanna put the burden or responsibility on that person who's hurting. And yet at the same time, I think what, what I've seen is, I'll, I'll talk with a patient or somebody who will say something like, there's nobody that I can talk with. Nobody, I don't have anybody. Mm -hmm. And then I'll, I'll kind of dig in and ask, and then they might say, well, you know, I know somebody, this 85-year-old neighbor, and they've tried to talk with me or invite me over for tea sometimes. But mm. And then I'll, I'll, I'll kind of sense 
maybe this is a different conversation, but I'll sense like maybe ageism or maybe I'll sense kind of like, you know, you're only looking for a certain demographic of a person to talk with. <laughs> but there's that 85 year old person who's a fountain of wisdom, who is an elder who can hear your problems and they may not say all the right things at the right time, you know, they may be of a different generation. And at the same time, there is someone. And so the more I can dig in, uh, the more I find that people often are not without support systems and support networks. And that doesn't have to be necessarily a trained professional. That would be ideal, but in many situations, uh, we don't have that. And certainly for children, uh, for people who are uh, in certain living situations, we need to just find the best that we can. And I, I think if we look around, there probably is someone who has been there and who has kind of been waiting and who is the right person and maybe doesn't fit our specific mold of what we would want, uh, but is that right person for that right time. That is a great word, thank you. Um, and we don't have to have just one person get us all the way to the finish line. That's right. I know there's people in my life that couldn't relate to me 100%, but they could at least listen just to give the gift of listening, help me to take that next step. Yeah, it could be one rung of a ladder. It could be when you're waiting for the bus and there's that one person you never see mm -hmm. them again, but there's that 20 mm -hmm. minute crucial conversation that you have with them. Somebody uh, on the airplane, somebody that you share an Uber with, you know, there's all kinds of situations. I, you know, I, I've come to know that I can learn from a 10 year old. You know, I can learn from an 85 year old. Uh, I can learn from somebody that I would normally maybe never see in my own circles, quote unquote. I mean, we're so used to the groove of our own circle and our routine that sometimes we see the same people over and over. But if you, if you step outside a little bit of that, you can find amazing, fascinating, fantastic people who are wonderful listeners and can offer wonderful wisdom. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you. Well, I want to end on a good note, the Hollywood way of doing things. <laughs> so one of the, my favorite stories in your book was the uh, time where you got to demonstrate your martial arts in front of your whole high school class. And it was like a Napoleon Dynamite moment. Yeah. <laughs> that this little Asian guy was <laughs> started into his routine and you had your own butterflies in your stomach and not sure how it will come across. And with much fear and trepidation, you went ahead and did the routine and then a moment, a pause, and then the room erupted. So can you relive that moment for us? Sure, yeah. You know, DJ, I'm so glad that somebody actually had a camera and took pictures. And I, I've posted that on my social media before. Oh, so, so cool. Yeah, I can link that to you. Um, we'll add that in the show notes, yes. Yeah, yeah. Somebody caught the exact moment that I actually jumped over the, uh, the football players. But yeah, you know, in, in high school, I was uh, sort of ostracized and didn't have many friends. Um, but then the one of the I think it was a VP or something one of the school administrators asked me if I could demonstrate martial arts for this multicultural fair they were having <laughs> here's the thing DJ that admin by the way probably did not know that I did martial arts <laughs> he oh. asked me that so in my mind I was like is he being generous or is he being racist oh, who knows you know <laughs> I don't know but um, I was so glad that he asked me and I, I, I said, yes. And I trained so hard, DJ. I, I describe it a little bit in the book. 
but I was jogging every day, throwing a thousand kicks a day. And then I put this cassette tape very specifically with music. And back then we had only cassette tapes. So I had to cut the music in a very specific way. And then uh, I came to the school that day, the multicultural fair and in the car, I parked my car and I burst into tears. And I just thought, nobody's going to like this. I'm making a fool of myself, you know, last minute jitters. You know, you know, that moment you have when you thought everything that you prepared for, it's going to be great. And then you realize you look at it, whether it's a speech or presentation, you go, oh, my gosh, this is so dumb. <laughs> mm. This is never going to go over. And you, you have that moment where you're just like, mm -hmm. I, I wrote this when I like during a fever dream and I thought it was brilliant, but it's crazy, you know. And I just started thinking the music is cheesy and they're not going to let me in and do this crazy demo. And who am I to do this? And luckily, there was a guy named Dom there. Um, who he was one of my dad's students and he, and he tapped on my window and kind of snapped me out of it. And I really liked Dom and Dom was a really, really nice guy. I, I wish I could, I could find him again. I've tried to look him up on Facebook and couldn't find him, but uh, we went in and then uh, lo and behold, I started the demo and I had my nunchucks. And I happened to be pretty good at nunchucks. And the moment that I, I started spinning those nunchucks, I mean, the crowd was floored. You know, it was the whole high school watching. And, uh, you know, when that happened here, I don't, I don't think I wrote this in the book. I do remember specifically a couple people feeling bad, like a couple people who had picked on me or who had maybe said something to me that, you know, just in the hallway or something like that. I remember afterwards, after the whole demo and everything, uh, you know, like you said, that people erupted into cheers and all that kind of stuff. But I, I remember a couple of people coming up to me and saying, hey, man, you know, I didn't get to know you all year. And I'm, you know, you're, you're really good. You know, not exactly sure. We're all young, right? Mm -hmm. We're all 17 then and not exactly sure how to say sorry or what we're feeling bad about. But they, they were trying to articulate like, gosh, I shouldn't have been so mean to you. Like, sorry about that. You know, you're actually a really cool guy. And I wish it would not have taken some kind of Taekwondo exhibition for me to be quote unquote accepted. I think everyone should be accepted qualifications or not. Um, but I am so grateful that I got to have that one moment where I got to show off my skill. I got a platform and a stage to do that. And, you know, it is like you said, kind of a Hollywood moment, you know, uh, high school prom or whatever we see in the movies all the time. There's that kind of one redemption moment that we get. Um, so that's a memory that I hold very, very dearly. And I still live in the same city that I was going to high school at. And every once in a while, I will still see people at the mall or grocery store. <laughs> and they'll look at me and they'll remember me. And then they will, they will say, uh, cause they were, they yelled Bruce after the demo for Bruce Lee. And there are still people that will whisper at me, Hey Bruce, <laughs> they, they won't remember my name, but they will say, Hey Bruce. And, and DJ, I take that as a compliment. I really do. Well, JS, thank you for sharing your life in so many ways. It's uh, been life-giving for me and many others as we see the response on social media. Uh, good luck with your book and your new family. May you experience much joy in the days ahead. DJ, thank you. Got a lot of love for you and God bless you very much. Thank you. And thank you for listening and watching this episode of Erasing Shame. Subscribe on any platform that you listen to podcasts on and connect with us on Facebook and YouTube and erasingshame.com. Mm -hmm.